You are listening to the Horse Radio Network, part of the Equine Network family. Hello, and welcome to the Sport Horse Podcast. I'm Nicole Lakin. And I'm Tim Warden. And today we have two experts to cover a topic that is always top of mind for our equestrian listeners. Yeah, so on today's show, we'll be talking about some of the biases in judging and assessing movement. Um, There's a lot of different components to this, um, both uh, sort of the limits of our capacity as humans visually um, and all of the things that we're trying to take in, and then all the psychological components um, that that build sort of shortcuts then for what your eyes can't process um, and how that relates to judging um, and our guests today are focused uh, primarily on dressage judging, but it's really applicable to any sport that um, is is judged. So really great conversation that I'm happy and that we had and excited for you guys to listen to. That was a very nice summary, Nicole. I'm very impressed sitting here listening to that. That was, that was very well done. Uh, so we've got two experts today, as, as we said. So the first is Dr. Inga Wolfram who is a professor of sustainable equestrianism at the University of Applied Sciences, Van Hall Larenstein. She holds an MSc in human and equine sports science and a PhD in rider psychology. Her previous research ranged from rider personality to effective mood states and mental skills training to horse rider coordination dynamics, judging bias and visual search behavior. She's worked with equestrians from grassroots to international level and has published several books about rider psychology and the horse rider interaction. She's passionate about equestrian sports and even more passionate about making it future proof. Her current research focuses on how the equine sector can transition towards sustainability and longevity. And then we also have Dr. Peter Reuter, who it'll be his first time appearing on the podcast and Inga was on a couple episodes in the past. And Peter's passion for horses began when he learned about horseback riding at the age of eight. He completed his PhD in 2010 in the field of neurology and molecular genetics, uh, essentially neuroscience, followed by a postdoctoral fellowship. He then joined Toby, uh, which is a Swedish eye tracking company and was a sales director for the medical and scientific research segment of that company. And then during the pandemic, he got back into the horse world. He purchased a horse and he'll talk a little bit about his uh, mare today. And at the time, began working alongside Dr. Inga Wolfram. And so today, he is currently an associate professor at Van Hal Larenstein, where he uses eye tracking technology to study visual patterns used when judging and training horses. Hello, Inga and Peter, and welcome to the Sport Horse Podcast. Hi there. Hello, pleasure to be here. All right, so we have a lot to cover, and I'm really excited to have uh, both of you with us today. So we'll just dive right into a really interesting study that uh, you passed along to us, Inga. And the study was talking about some of the biases that appear to be present in uh, high-level dressage judging scores. Can you provide like a really uh, high-level overview of those findings and sort of the key take-home points from that research? Oh, Tim, you know, you've had me on the show a couple of times now, so you know that short and sweet is not really my style, but I'll I'll do my my best. Um, So essentially what I tried to do in this particular study is um, um, I tried to demonstrate that uh, systematic errors or biases, um, that they do occur in dressage judging. And um, just to kick off, I think it's really important uh, to just make it very clear, I'm not criticizing the judges. 
Um, my aim of the paper wasn't so much to say that the judges are at fault, but that the system that we are currently using to, to judge horse rider combinations is very difficult to do in a, in a clear-cut, objective, transparent manner because essentially what it boils down to is, and anybody who's into horses knows this, assessing horse rider combinations is super complex. There's so much to look at. Um, and even when you're training a horse rider combination, when you've got lots of time to look at the different elements, even then, you know, it's sometimes quite difficult to sort of capture, okay, so what is it that I'm trying to do? For judges, that's even more difficult. So essentially what you have to do is you're going to have to look at lots of different elements. Um, first of all, you have to be able to see them. Then you're going to have to be able to, to, to classify, to categorize, is what I'm seeing, that's what I'm supposed to be seeing. And then you have to attach a value judgment in the sense that is what I'm seeing actually good or less good you know is what I expected and and then you have to attach a score to it and um essentially what it boils down to is when is something when is uh, a movement an eight when is it a seven when is it a six and if you only have literally a few seconds to make that decision plus there's enormous amount of pressure on you and you're thinking is it a seven is it a seven point five um then essentially you're going to turn to what we call cognitive shortcuts. Um, these are essentially simplified decision-making procedures that allow us to take a decision really quickly. And we'll get on to this later on throughout the show, I'm hoping, I'm assuming. But in judging, sometimes when you don't know which shortcut the right one is, you'll, you'll grab onto those that are really easily accessible. And that can be, hey, I've seen that horse rider combination before. I know who they are. Am I giving that combination a 7.5 or an 8? I saw them last week. I know that they're really good. I'll give them an 8. Hey, I've never seen them before. I'm not really quite sure. I'll err on the side of caution. I'll give them a 7.5. That's much quicker, even though our listeners are probably thinking, yeah, well, that's not fair. That's true. But in the heat of the moment, it's much quicker than thinking, hmm, is that hind leg really active? Is the pole really the highest point? Uh, is that nose in front of the vertical or perhaps just a bit behind? Is that a separate? You see what I mean? So, so, so what I was able to demonstrate just based on the scoring and on rider nationality, judging nationality, um, the FEI ranking and the starting order, that there are certain biases that judges fall back on when in doubt. And essentially what it boils down to, and I almost don't dare to say it because I can imagine our listeners going, see, I knew this all along, um, is that essentially nationality is a thing. Um, we've always suspected that the nationalistic bias, so that you have the same nationality as the judge, as a rider, that that's the biggest thing. But as it turns out, that's actually not the, the biggest bias. There's, there's a bias, and I call it patriotism by proxy. And essentially what that means that if you're looking at it from the judge's perspective, if a rider is coming in, um, say, for example, Tim, you are my rider now. I'm the judge. I'm German. You're Canadian. Are you Canadian? I, I am Canadian, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you're coming in. 
I'm judging you and I'm thinking, okay, Tim, you're not my nationality, but there's also a Canadian judge on the panel. And, and this might sound slightly crazy what I'm about to say, but I know I have a, an association with you because I also know that one of my fellow judges is Canadian. So thus, when push comes to shove and when I might be in doubt, do I give a, a 7.5 or an 8? And I've just had four days of judging with that particular person. I'm probably going to lean towards giving you an 8 rather than a 7.5. And this is human nature. This doesn't, it's really important to stress this. This is not conscious. I'm not setting out to, to provide higher scores to people who I like more or simply because they have the same nationality as me or as somebody else. This is something that as human beings, we try and take the easy way out simply because we don't have enough processing capacity to take in all the information we'd need. But then what happens is because I tend to, because uh, riders of certain nationalities that share the same nationalities as the judges on the panel get more, get higher marks, they also end up high on the FAI ranking list. And essentially, you know, dressage is a very, very small community, really. And people do know who the better riders or who the higher ranked riders are. So again, when a rider comes in who the judges know, hey, they're actually really good at, you know, they are ranked really high in the FEI dressage ranking, chances are, again, when a judge is in doubt, 7.58, oh, you know, I know this particular rider, um, I know approximately where they are in the ranking, so I give them an eight. Um, and lastly, um, if you're high on the FAI ranking, essentially, because of the, the draw that is being applied for the starting order, those riders will start later um, in the day, which essentially means, and again, this is a very common phenomenon um, that riders, athletes in any judged sport who are starting later in the day will end up getting higher marks. So essentially, that's why I'm calling this a bias cascade, because it kind of starts with one bias that actually translates through to other biases and essentially ending up um, essentially advantaging certain riders over others. Um, to cut a long story short, essentially, this is nothing new. We've seen this in other sports, and it's purely human nature. But this is what happens when you expect people to try and assess lots and lots and lots of complicated information in a very short time. Once the brain can't compute it all, they'll latch on to shortcuts. And some of these shortcuts might be biases and might be related to information that's got nothing to do with the performance on the day. Yeah, I mean, that all makes a lot of sense to me, and I'm sure everybody listening. I'm really curious about, um, in the context of your study, why you found some of these cognitive shortcuts were appearing and sort of the scientific process behind that, just to give everybody a little bit of an understanding of of how you went about um, evaluating this, this process of applying these shortcuts. So essentially, when we're talking about how do human beings make decisions, and I alluded to this um, in my introduction uh, very briefly, but essentially, 
when you're about to take a decision, um, first of all, you have to see what it is that you want to assess. Sounds really simple, but it's actually really quite important because it starts with, um, you know, there's this saying, uh, you blink and you miss it. The problem is sometimes in dressage, this is actually the case, you know, because to be honest, there's no single human being that can watch dressage for nine hours straight and not perhaps look away or whatever. Even, you know, during an entire dressage test, there will be moments where you might sort of look look elsewhere and then something might happen. You might miss it. But so this is the first step. The second step is you have to be able to categorize what you see. And that essentially means that um, you've got to be able to recognize um, the movement itself, and you have to be able to place it within the schema of what you've been trained to look for. And because this sounds really vague, I'm going to give you a bit of an example. And my husband will hate me because I keep using this as an example, but it's really funny, I think. Okay, so I've I've always ridden warm blood horses, and my husband's not really into horses, but you know he's been married to me for a while, so he tags along, and you know I make him sit there and watch me ride. And he got quite good at looking at my warm blood horses. But as of last year, I've got a PRE, so a Spanish breed. And obviously, they move slightly differently. And I hadn't had Marengo for very long. And I made my husband come along and watch me. And I was cantering. And I was really enjoying the canter because, you know, Spanish canter, it's lovely. You know, I was sitting there, la, 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 la. And my husband goes, is he lame? And I was thinking, huh? is he lame? What's he talking about and you know and me going thinking I even sort of look behind me thinking I don't know what you're talking about I'm like what no he's like well the trot looks really odd and I'm like well that's because it's canter um and just to sort of demonstrate um that my husband was unable to you know if he'd been a judge oh my god um god forbid um Essentially, he wasn't able to categorize what he was seeing. He thought he was looking at trot. And, well, you know, he thought, hey, that trot looks funny, so the horse must be lame. But actually, it was canter. And to us as, as horse people, it makes total, you know, we, we just think of her, but we know what trot and canter is. But if you sort of scale it down to, to, um, to a, a very detailed level, essentially, a judge has to be able to recognize what it precisely is they're wanting to see. Is this a half pass? Is it a one tempi change or a two tempi change? Um, and obviously to, to, to judges who've done this for a very long time, who are super experienced, yes, they do know, but it's important to realize that this is a process, processing step that has to happen. And once we've categorized things correctly, then we need to take into account all the different elements, i.e., what level is the horse at? Um, what am I supposed to be looking for? You know, uh, obviously at Grand Prix, that's easy enough. They're supposed to be at Grand Prix level, but at all other levels, that becomes even more difficult. You know, how 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 much in self-carriage should the horse be? Um, and based on that, you then have to attach a value to it. Um, and and the value that you attach to it is also based on your own experience. Um, um, on the circumstances that 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 you see horse rider combination working in. And all of that takes quite a lot of processing power. Now, if we consider the fact that as a human being, you're being bombarded with 
11 million bits of information per second. But your brain is only capable of processing 40 to 50 bits of information per second. There is a massive discrepancy. So I've just run through the different processing steps. And I guess we can all agree that that's actually quite a lot you have to do. And in addition to that, our brain isn't actually capable of, of well, computing more than 40 to 50 bits of information per second. You already know that there's a discrepancy. So to make it easier, what, you, what, what human beings do, once we've got experience, we latch on to areas of information where we know, hey, that's easy enough. I know that if I look at that particular area, it'll give me approximately, approximately the information that I need in order to come to, to a solid assessment. But now imagine you've got a movement that where you're thinking, hmm, is that good? Is it really good? What's my frame of reference here? And then you can sort of start to ponder for seconds, minutes, is this good? Is it really good? Is it very good? Is it excellent? Or is it rubbish? Um, the problem is that that is literally information overload. So what you then do is you latch on to something that you know in your gut feeling because of the experience, because of all the knowledge that you've accumulated. Hey, if I, if I for example, um, focus on the nationality of the rider because I know he or she comes from a team that's that's performed really well in the past, that's much simpler. And thus, and perhaps it might not be as accurate, but it'll still give you an approximation of the value judgment that you're looking for. Later on in the day, you know that that's when the better riders will start. So if you are juggling between, do I give a seven or eight? Um, the benefit of the doubt will always go towards the end of the day, towards the eight. While at the beginning of the competition, where you don't quite know yet what's coming, your gut feeling will say, hmm, perhaps I need to err on the side of caution. In addition to that, um, we also know, especially at elite levels, you know, we've got either five or seven judges, depending on uh, the type of competition that it is. We also know that now with increased uh, uh, transparency in the sense that everybody knows uh, uh, the scores, even, you know, you know, as they come out, um, everybody knows uh, who the judge is, uh, the kind of score the judge has given, um, um, literally a, a few seconds after they're sort of punched in the key. Um, but we also know that uh, uh, the equestrian world um, are very quick to ha ha to judge. So if there is a particular judge that might be giving a score that is completely off from all the other judges, the chances that that judge is being criticized mm, are relatively high. Um, you know, because we also know that this is happening. So, so what do you do as a judge? You, you'll you'll try, you know, and you also know uh, generally because you know you've been working together for years. You approximately know um, what the other ones will give. So, so you'll try and 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 
and and and and give a score that is an approximation of what you think the other ones will give and that's we that's what we call the the confirmation bias that we're trying to conform um simply because we don't want to be the odd one out we want to conform to what what the others are doing and this applies to judging as much as to any other field interesting interesting um and the, we're very fortunate to have Peter on the call as well, who comes from a very strong neuroscience uh, background. And Peter, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on on some of these uh, topics. So, um, as Inga alluded to, like it's so highly complex for these judges. There's so much information that they can look at, and I'm curious to hear your thoughts on, you know, what do judges tend to to focus on, or uh, where do you think like the, the human brain tends to look? given these uh you know these very challenging constraints that we're placing uh the brain in yeah the good thing is that um i just joined the the team from Inga about a month ago um and knowing from my background in eye tracking technology for many many years now is also that i have some experience with customers using the same methodology but in different kinds of sports one thing that we just did a couple of years ago was in karate for instance there you have five judges around the scene um, and then also looking at them, um, at the ones uh, competing. And also there, I found out that, um, all the different judges have different criteria on how they, they, they match it and how they look at the, um, the people. And one thing that really sticks out, and, um, Inga already mentioned that is that people try to focus on certain things. And then if you just look away for a second and come back, you might have missed something which is very important. And I think, um, I don't know if you're familiar with the term um, that I just forgot right now. <laughs> yeah. It's about um, when you when you look at the scene and then, for instance, you ask someone to count the passes when people pass the ball to one another. And um, then you ask them, have you seen the gorilla walking through? That's called change blindness. And you just need to type it into um into the into the web and say, well, let's let's do one of these. And when you do it with an with an audience, and I've done that a couple of times doing eye tracking trainings, that you ask them, well, can you pa- um, can you count the, the passes? And then you the people start with a conversation saying, yeah, but well, I think it was eight. No, no, it was ten. I saw it because the last one might be missed very easily. And then you ask them, have you seen the gorilla walking through the scene? So no, you're kidding me. There was no gorilla. And then you replay the same video. And there is actually a literal gorilla walking through the scene, but no one has seen it. And that, of course, can also happen very easily while judging. But um, of course, there are not gorillas in the horse arena, um, at least would be very surprising. Um, but it can happen very easily that people maybe are focusing on something different and therefore are missing something that might be very obvious for other people. Because what you need to know is that when you, um, that's why what eye tracking technology is used for that you can visualize where people are having their focus. And this focus is a very small spot. It's about two degrees in the visual field, which is like a thumbnail when you stretch your arm. So it's a very, very small arena. Of course, you also see something in the periphery. Um, and that's something I discussed with, with Inga today, is that some people say, yeah, but I also see something in the periphery, so therefore I'm, I'm kind of, I'm fine. But the thing is, the periphery is only there to pick up notions that grab our attention so that our focus can shift. So it might be that you're also seeing something in the periphery, but when your focus doesn't shift, you don't really 
work on it. So, so your brain doesn't really pick up on it. So therefore, it's, it's really nice to now have the opportunity to also measure the focus of attention while judging, because then you can see um, something that might be also very supportive in um, looking at how you can train future judges. And that's also something we'll be discussed now more and more, that it is sometimes very helpful to know, like when you want to see something in relation, what can you use to make that happen even quicker? That's really fascinating. I mean, uh, on a side note, I don't think there's a single dressage horse I've ever met that would allow for a gorilla to walk through the yeah. arena and, and not and not react to it. But uh, um, that's neither here nor there. Um, so, Peter, what 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 do humans assessing movement typically focus on? And um, I mean, where do the eyes tend to go? And is this something that's highly individual, or is there sort of a, a broad? Um, sort of understanding or a, a broad way that all people uh, tend to tend to focus. Yeah, that's um, that really is very individual because it might be like we, we just have a study ongoing where you see horse faces and people are asked to judge if they think this horse is in pain or not. So if you have some experience, you might know at which place to look at. Whereas if you don't have no experience at all, you just look around and you see, well, it looks like this horse is smiling. Knowing, like we would know, horses do not smile. So therefore, that is um, a bit insane to, to think about that. But um, so therefore, it's really highly individual when it comes to your experience that you have. Um, but also, usually, it's really the case that we are... Um, highly affected by movements. So when something is moving, we tend to look at it. So for instance, if you have a scene where, where a person is judging and then maybe something is passing by very quickly with a high speed, you will definitely look at that. You, you can't help it because that's what we are made of. Because just imagine many, many years ago when you have been running through the savannah and then a lion was coming by, you needed to see that. And to be able to do it, you needed to pick it up with a periphery, and then you need to shift your focus on it to instantly see, is it something I need to be scared of? Or is it something, maybe it's just a, a peer running by, or maybe a gazelle or whatever. So um, therefore, that's something we can't, we can't help it. So we definitely will react to it. From what we've done, so we've started running a few studies now um and i actually say a few studies and we sometimes think okay um how we're going to manage this but um the 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 excitement that we're encountering when we're actually uh asking judges uh, and also trainers by the way but you know we're sort of trying to sort of narrow our scope but we also notice that peter and i together mm, narrowing is not really our strong suit um <laughs> um but so what what we what we're currently doing as at this point in time, it, because we know that the judges look, that they've got individual search patterns, but it's now comes the time that we need to, well, if you like, develop a baseline, trying to figure out um, what the typical visual search behavior might be for a very experienced judge, for uh, for a beginner judge. And from the first data that, that we've seen so far, you can actually tell that um, um, for example, uh, I've now seen particular. I've, I've, I've seen a few judges assess an extended walk, um, and again, there will be differences. Uh, but there's one particular judge who I've worked with quite a lot, and I think by now I could pick out her visual search pattern uh, uh, from quite a few because I know that uh, um, she will look at 
the rider leg, you know, what is the rider leg doing? How does that translate into the hand? So she'll first do, she'll check the calf muscle uh, of the rider. Um, then her, her eye will travel towards the, the front of the horse, to the contacts, to the mouth. And then she will check the footfall. So her travel, so her gaze will travel to the feet of the horse. And then it'll travel back again to the calf, to the, to the rider leg, and to the to the to the front of the horse and then to the feet and this and this sort of repeats itself and it's actually quite interesting because it because you know so there's and this is for the extent for the extended walk so there isn't really check there isn't all that much else that she'll be checking uh, perhaps now we're going to actually checking whether the horse is still traveling on the diagonal uh, in the sense you know in the arena but that's it but that also indicates to us that Judges, as they become more experienced, they'll develop their own, and here's that word again, shortcuts. But these are probably very functional shortcuts because it'll allow them to determine within a relatively short period of time what the most important areas of interest are. But here comes, here comes the tricky bit. Because our judging system is such that it outlines lots, which to many might say might, might seem as being a really good thing because it's 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 so thorough it also leaves a lot of space for in, a lot of room for interpretation meaning that depending on what your own level of experience is as a judge you might have developed your own visual search patterns but they might be very different to the judge who's sitting next to you and then there's no surprise that you might deviate in scoring and the question is is that an issue? Well, that's for us as, 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 a, as an industry to decide. But what we're currently doing is we're, first of all, now trying to map what these different visual shortcuts might be, what, what they might look like. Uh, do they differ from judge to judge? Yes, they do. Do they differ from movement to movement? Yes, they do. And what precisely are the most salient areas of, of information that judges might be focusing on and how can we can we work from there to sort of determine together okay so this is really what we should be looking at to assess the welfare of a horse this is what we should be looking at when it comes to assessing performance you know and so so literally it's a bit of yeah I said it this morning people it's a bit it's a bit like an onion you kind of have to peel away all the different layers um, to really get to the to the juicy bits. Really, really interesting. And just building off of your point, uh, like Inga, about like, sort of directing people as to where to look. Um, I know in, in human sport or like a sport like track and field, for example, uh, where there's so much information about the biomechanics, like the actual like motor control. I, I know there is information out there about like, if you watch someone sprints the 100 meters, like there are only a few points during the stride cycle you actually need to look at. And if the the runner hits the correct positions at those points, then it means that the rest of the the stride cycle must have been correct because like they can't hit those points if they don't. Um, and so like Peter, like I'll maybe kick it over to you, just knowing that you've worked with uh, across a bunch of different sports and like you, you worked with karate, for example, you mentioned before, what sorts of recommendations could you make to help remove some of the the bias or, or some of the limitations with these shortcuts? Like, do you think it's possible or is it always 
going to be something that's there and it's really, really hard to, to tease out of uh, judging in sport. Well, it is definitely possible because we, we have also done some studies or at least some, some colleagues in Japan have done them um, with some car manufacturers who are interested in expert versus novice looking behavior. And I think that could come in very handy if you look at that because it's all also about efficiency. So, of course, someone who's new in judging will take much longer to assess movement compared to someone who maybe has 20, 30 years judging experience. But if you would know, these are the looking behaviors that support you in judging faster than um, compared to if you try to get it all at once, which is really impossible. Because if you look at it from a perspective that I use always in trainings, is that it's really like a mosaic puzzle picture. So you need to have a lot of small dots so that you get the, get the entire picture. But um, very rarely the horse is standing still. Like if you are um, if you are looking at a horse in in yeah extended canter, that's a fast movement. And then um, if you if you think okay was the hind leg really there where it should be? And then oh no it's gone already. So you need to be really quick and you need to have the right um, yeah, the right patterns, maybe the, the right um, uh, structure in where to look at at what uh, yeah period of time. So therefore, I think it could come in very handy to look also at other eye tracking studies that are out there to check what have they done to make um, to make that transition successfully. And you can imagine with big um, car manufacturers, for them, time is money. So if you spend too much time on things that are not um, useful, they will either um, it takes longer to produce the car, or they might have more um, more mistakes while doing it. And of course, usually, like depending on on what level you are judging, maybe money is not the crucial part. But I think overall, you want to give a good result to the rider so that they also can start to develop and um, yeah, get better in what they are doing. And if we can help with that by identifying the right keys that you need to turn to get a better picture. Um, that would be really, really helpful. And what, uh, what we've seen so far, and we were both very surprised, and I also know that from, from other sports, like the mentioned karate case, that usually the judges are very, very happy to get this insight because they also want to develop. Not only the, the athletes do, but also the judges. They want to know what they need to do to become better in what they're doing because everyone is very passionate about what they're doing. So therefore, I think it is really something that... Um, that will develop over time and we, we just started. So there's still a long journey for us um, to go through. But from what we've seen so far is that everyone is very eager to learn and to develop and to get better every day. And um, that is also valid for um, for the judging process. Yeah, that's really great to hear. And, and also definitely we're excited to see, you know, where your, where your research goes and, and how it develops over time. Cause I think it, it's really important um, for for this sport but also for for all sports that are are judged um but i think it's important to also uh touch on the fact that judging isn't just about co competition um when we're assessing horses for purchase for example for soundness um i'm sure you know everyone can think of biases that they bring to that assessment how do you think that data can help to clarify those points and um you know, if you if you want to expand on coaching as well, but I'm really interested in the context of of evaluating a horse for especially that you um you know are seeing for the first time, but coming coming to with a lot of um different biases and experiences. 
Well, luckily, um, especially in the uh, field of, uh, uh, of of movement analysis, and, and I know you know you've you've spoken to uh, our colleagues from uh, Utrecht University, um, the you know the Faculty of Veterinary Medicine about um, their research on on biomechanics on on soundness. But uh, uh, and there I'm now touching on the, you know, on on one of the on one of the topics that at the moment is sort of a bit of a buzzword, and that is AI, of course. But um, what's really important here is that that we now have uh, technologies such as well, first it was IMUs, but by now it's also AI, which of course is building on the years and years the, on the decennia of research that that's been done into biomechanics into lameness assessment. Whereby now it's it's progressed to the stage that we can actually draw on AI to assess very objectively whether a horse is lame or not. And that you know when we're talking about you know uh, uh, um, 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 the the uh, pre-purchase examinations, you know, or, or even when you're coming to the vet, whether your horse is lame or not, um, because we also know that you know you ask ten vets and essentially they'll give you ten slightly different answers, um, simply because. It, it, it starts with the color of the leg. You know, if two of the legs are white and the other ones are brown uh, or chestnut, you already have a visual issue. Um, and 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 no conscious effort in the world is going to help you um, um, shift that that illusionary effect. So there, things like AI uh, and 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 sensor technology, IMUs, can help immensely to really objectify. But when we're talking a performance assessment, um, uh, pre-purchase examinations, or even uh, a lameness assessment, you know, the, the, or the vet checks, shall we say, <laughs> lameness assessment, vet checks uh, uh, at the start of a competition, obviously there there will be a bias too, you know, uh, um, as to who's the rider who's presenting the horse. And yes, and I know that that shouldn't make a difference, and yet it does because we're human beings and we're inclined to try and and, and be part of a, a certain group. And that's why it's so important that where possible, we use where it's available, where it's reliable, where it's objective, where it's been evidence-based and tested, and where we know that the output that it gives us is really what we're expecting to see, that there we use technology. Um, because it can really support us and help us in, in assessing things that we can assess. But there is there is another another side to it, and that is that we also have to be very careful that we don't jump onto the technology AI bandwagon all too quickly. Because um, at the end of the day, um, technology is only as good as the research that's gone into it the years before, as much as AI is only as good as the information that is feeding it. So I think we need to be we need to be very clear as to what we're doing. Um, we need to be very clear as to whether we as human beings first have a really good understanding of the processes, whether we're able to whether be able to control them is another matter. But first we need to be we need to be very conscious of what are the processes that are going into a certain assessment. And once we know that, then we can start looking at the potential barriers and how we might be able to fix them. If that awesome. makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. I I always say um, too. I mean, like 
these technology, these tools are are amazing um, and and bring us a way to um, have objective data incorporated into our assessment, but they can't be used in a vacuum by themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's so funny as I'm hearing you guys list, talk about, um, you know, the the eye patterns and the way that we assess movement as human beings. I always think about whenever I'm presenting a horse, you know, in uh, even if it's just a, a regular assessment with the vet, just to check up on it. Um, the feeling to me is always way more <laughs> meaningful than anything that I can see visually. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, you know, when you have an understanding of, of biomechanics and, and dressage a bit, you can generally, most horses, you, you can sh- impact their asymmetries a bit with your pressure and, and your, you know, ability to, to guide them. Um, so I always think it's, it's interesting to know if, if you can do that or not. I hate to, to close this out with thoughts from me because this is not what we're here for, but, um, Inga, since you've already been with us, I'm going to put Peter on the spot here um, to answer our final question um, that we ask all of our guests. And that's if you could speak to a horse and the horse could understand you, what would you want to tell them? Yeah, um, I just think about my horse, um, which because we, we had an interesting journey the last few years. And what I definitely want to want to tell her that I'm like my job is there to support her and not to, to confuse her. Um, even though it might appear sometimes differently, um, <laughs> you have to definitely make sure that she she knows that I will take care of her and um, everything will be all right in the end. Perfect. No, I, I think that's a lovely uh, a lovely closing uh, thought and and yeah, like it's something that I hope that we're we're all striving towards. So thank you for that, Peter. Uh, and so we'll wrap it up. Thank you so much, Peter and Inga. Really, really fascinating to to have this discussion. Really looking forward to seeing uh, some of this more, some more of this research as it comes out, and you get a chance to publish it. And we'll definitely have you back in the future to uh, to talk about that. Thank you. Looking forward to it. Thanks so much. And another really fascinating discussion with Inga, and I'm so glad she brought Peter into the conversation as well. It's it's always interesting to talk to someone who has a, a very different uh, skill set, but who can complement. Um, Inga, who's such an expert on the topic, uh, but I think for sure it's something that I that I always think about. And again, like I just wanted to highlight that we're not saying that judges do these things on purpose or that you know there's any malicious intent to to having these biases. It's just something that is inherent in how the human brain is wired. And as we learn more about this, I, I think it just empowers everyone. It empowers judges, it empowers uh, the riders and the coaches and the trainers and, and the fans at home to understand um, what judges will be looking at as we you know, study more and more and maybe are able to start uh, incorporating some recommendations on regarding like how to avoid some of these biases. So it's, I think it's actually a really exciting time for uh, the judge sports, so a sport like dressage or even like the hunter ring. And I'm really looking forward to seeing where this goes. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, I was thinking a bit during, during our conversation about my own attempts to um, visually evaluate lameness, for example, um, or just asymmetries that maybe don't quite uh, um, meet the definition of lameness, but they're, they definitely are, are um, accessible to the human eye. Um, and it was really interesting to hear 
uh, in the terms of experienced judges, how they develop different patterns for viewing and evaluating a movement and where their eyes go. And um, there's some really cool stuff coming down the way from Inga and Peter around that. So um, we'll definitely keep you guys posted there. Um, and and we barely got to touch on um, AI, but um, it's a really interesting tool, I think, um, that will not only enable us to get a, an understanding of the things that the human eye can't measure, but also potentially could be used as a tool to train judges and train um, vets and people who are just developing their eye and just learning to evaluate movements. So a lot of cool stuff coming uh, down the line. And and it was really fun having the conversation with Peter and Inga today to learn um, how far they've come in their research. So with that, um, you can find the links to today's guests and our show notes at www.sporthorsepodcast.com. You can also follow us at Sport Horse Series. I really, really encourage you, um, anyone who didn't listen to our previous episode, we have a new website for our company that uh, is is the company that brings you the Sport Horse Podcast. It's called Ignite. And you can find information about Ignite, about the podcast, and all of the other really exciting initiatives that we have going on you know, today and into the future at www.igniteforequineathletes.com. Dot com. Um, so that's all spelled out, no letters or no numbers or anything. That's ignite for equineathletes.com. You can have all 20 plus shows of the Horse Radio Network with you wherever you go with our free app for iPhone and Android. Just go to the App Store and search Horse Radio Network. And uh, thanks as always to our foundational partners, Hilltop Bio and Boehringer Ingelheim for making all of these uh, cool initiatives we have going on possible. And here's to keeping your sport horse happy and healthy. Mm-hmm.